At Ashurst, we acknowledge First Nations people as the traditional custodians of the land on which we work in Australia, and we pay our respects to their elders, past and present. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. Hello, and welcome to this special episode of ESG Matters at Ashurst. My name's Tamara Cannon and I'm a lawyer with over 20 years commercial experience and the founder of Lil Fro Foundation, an Australian not-for-profit working to bridge the gap for children living in extreme poverty through education. I'm a passionate human rights and social impact advocate and thrilled to join Ashurst's ESG practice, helping organisations bring about positive change. In today's episode, we discuss how proactive business leaders can embed corporate purpose and shared value at the very centre of their corporate strategies. In doing so, boards and executives are better able to anticipate and deliver on the expectations of their stakeholders, from investors and customers to employees and government. This is an opportunity for organisations to show proactive leadership around major social issues and achieve positive change. But it requires creativity, courage and vision. In this episode, we explore what it means to go beyond traditional reputational risk management and instead take a holistic and systemic social value creation approach to managing risk. Our special guest in this episode is Audette Excel. Audette is a pioneer of social entrepreneurship in Australia. Almost 25 years ago, she ripped up the rule book and started Adara Advisors, a for-profit business which seeks to alleviate extreme poverty and disadvantage. Together with her panel of advisors and donors, Audette has raised over $16 million to fund social development projects. Audette is also a non-executive director of Westpac. Joining us for this discussion are Elena Lambrose, who heads up Ashurst's climate change and sustainability practice, and Robert Handley, who heads up Ashurst's legal governance advisory team. You're listening to ESG Matters at Ashurst. Audette, Elena and Rob, welcome to the podcast. So social entrepreneurs have always existed and in the past they were called visionaries, humanitarians, saints or simply great leaders. Odette, you do fall in that category. Uh, And when I cast my mind back and put things into perspective, 10 years prior to when Adara was founded, there was a huge explosion in this space. So for you to have come up with that idea in 1998, that would have been such a radical concept. Can you take us back to how this all began and where that idea came from? Sure, I'm happy to do that and delighted to be here. Thanks. I don't think anybody who knows me would call me a saint, by the way, so I'm, I, I, I'm definitely not going to own that as a, as a title. But uh, as you rightly say, I'm, I'm a little amazed to find Adara nearly 25 years old. Um, and a lot of what, you know, in truth was really hubris and, um, uh, and, and perhaps a crazy idea is now now we're still standing as being re- reinterpreted somehow as great vision but it is it, it is lovely to be standing here and it is lovely that something that was considered to be so kind of out of left left of center is now almost mainstream you know the wave that we've seen which i know we'll, we'll talk a lot about of esg um it's been wonderful to um to 
be part of that and to watch that for all these years. Um, but, you know, simply put, the the idea of Adara, and as you know, Adara is, is nothing more really than a corporate advice business for entirely for purpose that's set up as a funding engine for the NGO work, the non-for-profit work that we do around the world with people in extreme poverty. Uh, so it's a funding source, if you like. The idea just came from the very simple idea that if we really want to change the world, we need to bridge divide. We need to stop thinking in silos, our business silos and our not-for-profit silos silos or our philanthropic silos and we need to create models and structures you know that are hybrids of those and so Adara was my crack at um, uh, one such model um, and it has been a winding sort of journey of joy and tears um, and there's many many other uh, models out there now um, but it came from just that singular thought that if we want to change the world which of course we do we have to bridge divide and we have to think outside of our silos um, so you know that's how we we find ourselves here after all these these years well that's right and and after 25 years you have touched the lives of more than 200,000 people living in poverty and I know opening doors of opportunity and providing the chance for that social mobility for people in need is a hugely rewarding experience there's a point, though, with many social entrepreneurs where it becomes less about, yes, this is a joyful experience to, OK, now where is the greatest need and striving for greater impact? So how did you identify these projects and your beneficiaries and how, how do you measure impact? Yeah, no, really good question. So, and it's actually 200,000 people a year that we that we touch. So over the course of the quarter of a century, um, it's been an awful lot of people. I mean, never enough. Um, and um, and so that's through our direct service delivery. As, as um, I think you know, we're, we're specialists in maternal newborn healthcare, particularly the preterms and low birth weight babies. And we're really specialist in um, very remote service delivery education. So our, our most remote project is 25 days walk from a road. Um, so you're totally right. You go from wow, this is this is joyous, and uh, you know I've got to get after it. To holy cow, what's my responsibility and all of this, and I, am am I doing good rather than bad? Um, and I'm happy to say that what what happens as what's happened to me anyway as a social entrepreneur is you get joined by amazing people who really really understand. Um, uh, the nature of the work. So for us, in terms of impact, for instance, impact, our thinking around impact has really deepened over the years. I've been lucky enough to have behavioral scientists standing by me right the way through, but we have monitoring and evaluation research teams, best practice innovation teams who help us think about impact. And what we do is, and have increasingly done over the last um, 15 years or so is we, we map theory, we work from theories of change. So we start with our teams on the ground and communities on the ground trying to figure out what is the change that the communities want to happen here and, and then we map through a theory of change process which is quite deliberate around ways to make that change and then we monitor and measure it really really with a sharp focus. So we, we look at the data that comes, um, we look and listen to the voice of our client group very carefully. And we particularly look at the biggest mistakes that we make or the areas that we're not doing well. And then we use that to not only shape our program work going forward, um, to try to do better, deeper work, but we also use that to share with others so that we try to take years off other people's learning time from the mistakes that we've made. Um, but the, you know, the, the, it's, a, it's a very serious process for us. Um, it's been going on for a very long time. We, our first work back in 1998, we did household level baseline surveys um, in the communities that we were going to intervene in before we intervened and we map everything. So it's, we've got a lot of rich data 
um, and we, we map everything um, uh, from there. Um, and it's been wonderful to see how that unfolds. Wonderful to see where we've done well, where the theory of change is working. And of course, heartbreaking sometimes when you realize, gee, no, no matter how hard we tried, we still messed that up or didn't make change. Um, but yes, we think a lot about impact at Adara to make sure. We, I believe the poor, we all believe the poor deserve really high quality service delivery. And um, if I thought we weren't doing that, and if any of our team thought we weren't doing that, we would give our money to somebody else who does do that. And that's the kind of baseline that we run across all our work. Well, that's right. I mean, development is such a grey area and there is no one size that fits all. So when you are mapping impact, you know, you have to take into account also the remote areas in which you're working. So if you're looking for that um, dollar per child analysis, which, which gets rolled out all the time, then, you know, uh, it's very hard when you are taking on such enormous challenges in, in different corners of the globe. I find that kind of analysis really offensive. And I think the business community, uh, you know, brings its metrics into the international development or the development sector without necessarily understanding that things don't translate exactly. Um, and you can, if you're not careful about how you measure impact, you can really distort high quality service delivery. Um, so you start, for instance, to look for easier client groups um, uh, who might meet your metrics or whatever, or, you know, whatever the issues are. So and the dollar per child issue is one of the reasons that people don't do remote um, because, you know, the bang for the buck argument. But, you know, we're talking about human rights here. We're talking about, you know, um, uh, the the entitlement of every human being on this planet to have great service delivery. And I, and I really believe we need to bring a rights-based approach to our thinking around how we measure and monitor impact. And you're entirely right. It's different in every single place that, that um, anybody works. Mm, that's right. Well, today we are seeing a different role for businesses in society. It's so positive. And that's one that tilts the scales of purpose and profit. So Rob, how, how are boards managing these broad range of expectations in order to create that marriage between purpose and business? That's a very good question. And as you know, in essence, boards have to act in the interests of shareholders. But the interesting thing over the last few years is the meaning of what acting in the interests of shareholders is, is changing. Uh, increasingly, it's not just acting for shareholders, it's taking into account all relevant stakeholders. And that includes employees and also the communities in which companies operate. And so as a result, directors now are obliged to stay up to date with what society considers are important issues. So their organisations maintain effectively their social licence to operate. For example, issues like cultural sensitivity, the rights of First Nations people, diversity and inclusion more broadly, workplace behaviour, human rights, uh, as Audette has already mentioned. You know, directors need now to ensure that their companies anticipate and avoid foreseeable risks, and increasingly those risks include ESG-related risks. So actions that contradict the company's social license to operate can lead to significant reputational damage with far-reaching repercussions, including a fall in the company's share price, shareholder upheaval, executive resignations, and even corporate and director liability. And also, and I think very importantly, a company's purpose is increasingly important for employees. People want to work for an organisation whose clearly articulated purpose is something that they're proud of. And we hear this a lot. And as a consequence, in an era at the moment, especially where there's a war for talent, I think we're definitely seeing a marriage of business and purpose. Mm, 
Well, and they, we, we see in the newspapers just discussion every single day about ESG and the focus is generally on the E and the G and, and it's really heartening um, to see that there is discussion around the S and, and that purpose-led businesses really are needing to step up on that front. Elena, how important is it for businesses to get the narrative right and where do they even start? I agree on so many of these issues and what we've already spoken about, but I would just highlight it is so valuable for companies to engage with stakeholders, which, you know, includes their employees, their customers, their investors and the wider community on the right issues and demonstrating the approach. You know, businesses need to be engaging with this broad group of stakeholders on the matters that matter to them. I'm not saying that's an easy piece of work. I would say it's quite significant, but getting it right can set your business up for long-term success and sustainability. And it also reduces your risk to, you know, regulatory or litigation issues. Uh, In terms of where to start, you know, I just kind of start from the very beginning. You know, you start, you define your strategy, you review your internal and external commitments. You start identifying your new risks and setting a solid foundation for executing on your plans. You know, in a complex topic, particularly around the S in ES and G, you need to ensure there's like externalities associated with your commitments are being accounted for and priced into your projects and activities. So, you know, whether that's like employment or well-being or other metrics that you might want to be measured against. And you also need to have a strong framework in which to understand these interdependencies and trade-offs that might be required all at the same time by meeting your regulatory and compliance obligations. You know, so it's really part of the organisational fabric and then keeping that kind of strong brand and reputation. I think that's um, benefiting everybody these days. Mm, absolutely. So Odette, you sit on the board of one of Australia's leading banks and how do you see that your lived experience can influence decision-making? There's a lot of different ways to make change, right? So I, I'm, I, I'm privileged enough to get the chance to um, to try to make change in, as a social entrepreneur, but also to um, uh, be a non-exec director um, in, some, in some great companies. Um, and I think, you know, I completely agree with Eleanor and um, Rob, you know, ESG now is front and centre for, for boards. Um, and um, these discussions, I mean, you only need to look at the Edelman Trust Barometer that comes out. In fact, the 2022 one's just out to see the overwhelming majority of of, um, uh, respondents saying they want their businesses to be speaking about and involved in, whether it's geopolitical risk or climate change issues, um, societal issues. I mean, it's a real change in the way that people, I think, are expressing themselves around business. So too, um, with Westpac. Um, and um, so if you're lucky enough to be um, on the board of one of these companies, you get a chance to use your voice around these incredibly interesting discussions. And one of the things that I think is really important is that when the discussion comes on about profit versus purpose, that you know that it becomes really clear that these these two concepts are not mutually exclusive. Um, and in fact, in fact, they're quite the opposite. You know, they're bound together. And as Rob says, you know, as our stakeholders, now, you know, we're so past Milton Friedman, um, the, the one stakeholder being the shareholder, our stakeholders are our customers, our staff, our community, our, cl- our environment, you know, and our shareholders. And it's a perfect, perfect marriage when you bring all that together. So having um, the chance to sit on the board of a major company like that as an entrepreneur 
you know, I ran a publicly traded bank before I set up Adara. So I've worked across different parts of the economy, but it allows me to, to bring that thinking about innovation, about social purpose, about how you manage purpose and profit together and add my voice um, to a group of people uh, working together to try and get the best possible outcomes for all those stakeholders. It's a huge privilege. Mm. And have you seen a shift in how organisations are, are choosing to lead? Perhaps um, Rob might jump in on that one. Sure, sure. Yeah, I, I think there has been a real shift. I think organisations are increasingly signalling to shareholders and the broader stakeholder community that they take ESG issues seriously and that their organisations are not pursuing profit at the expense of everything and everyone else. I think business leaders are becoming increasingly transparent about their decisions and also, and, and also their mistakes. And I think there is uh, finally greater accountability for those mistakes. And let, let me you know, pick a few examples. You know, a number of leading retailers, um, I'm sure everyone knows, have been found to have underpaid their workers. And, and many of those companies have very publicly taken responsibility, apologised to those affected and undertaken to remedy the situation. Um, recently, a multinational mining company uh, itself commissioned an independent report into workplace culture uh, at its remote mining sites. And once that report was published, uh, the chief executive very publicly acknowledged the shortcomings, undertook to take um, very deliberate steps to address the underlying issues. Uh, and in, in, in another issue, diff a different type of issue, uh, one of the leading retailers in Australia, uh, although it had the legal right to do so, uh, opted not to open a new store which sold alcohol near to where First Nations communities were located uh, for fear that they would suffer consequences as a result of doing so. In fact, I, I had a conversation last week with a senior executive of a, of a different financial institution to the one uh, or debts on the, uh, on the board of, and he said to me that before taking any material decisions, the, the management team and the board ask themselves a question and they say, it's not can we, but should we in relation to whatever the issue is. That is a, a real demonstration of the shift to how organisations are choosing to operate and to lead. Well, that's right. You know, when you look look back to, I guess, the um, where the, the social licence to operate first originated, and that was with the mining companies. And I think the Back then in the 70s, 80s, it was more, what can we get away with? Uh, and nowadays there's that shift to, well, it's not just about how do we leave the world, the, leave in a better place, but rather it's what, how can we add to that? What impact can we make? And it's taking it or driving social change that one step further. And it's it's really coming down to also, I think, to an activist workforce and they're, they're really demanding these changes and um, near enough's not really good enough. They want to see that their, their bosses are walking the talk and taking action as well. I'd agree with that. And, um, and I just wanted to add to that, if I may, we're now living in the, the age of the internet. We're a global workforce. We're connected. It's, it's wonderful, the access to information that we have. So, you know, radical transparency, to your point, um, Tamara, is what we're, we're talking about. And, and people are making choices. 
based on what they understand in a way that perhaps, you know, decades ago, there, were, there was so much less available information about what corporations were doing. So we now have these incredible tools to hold corporations and to hold ourselves to account. And, and I think that's a huge part of why we're seeing this shift um, uh, of, of societal expectation. I couldn't agree with Rob Moore. It's, it's an, it's, watershed it is enormous compared to the way it was you know when i started in business 35 years ago or however long ago it was you know purpose is now the number one conversation that takes place in the biggest boardrooms not only in australia but around the world and i think that's very hopeful for us all in terms of where we're headed absolutely and it is such a pivotal point and over over the last decade but particularly i think accelerated by covid uh, we've seen this strengthened sense of global citizenry so you know it is that that next generation consider it natural to take the lead in the creation of solutions to social problems and they expect their bosses to do the same so whether that's safeguarding the environment or protecting human rights providing access to healthcare or just decent working conditions. But understandably, many CEOs feel out of their depth. Are businesses that don't take on the responsibility of being good global citizens going to be left behind? And, you know, how are these boards making these decisions? I might start there, Tamara. I would just say that I think the expectation on businesses to be a good global citizen is just continuing to increase. I think people just essentially don't want to do business with people who aren't making the right decisions. You know, you don't want to be supporting an organization that has slave labor, child trafficking, or other human rights in their supply chain. You know, they don't want to have a direct or indirect link to supporting a business that isn't doing the right thing by its employees or who has no regard for the human impact in its business decisions. And the other point I would make about that is that um, everyone expects that business is actually taking their these decisions and they're being informed about them. So I don't think it's any excuse to say that you weren't aware of these issues across your supply chain or or you didn't think it through. I think people expect you to be thinking about these and actually making the right decision. Um, And I would say it doesn't just kind of stop at the stakeholder. I think there is some clear expectations coming from, you know, regulators around this. And I expect that we'll see a lot more focus on this issue going forward. I think there is a huge increase in transparency and and accountability, but I agree with Audette. I think it's being driven by an enormous ability for various stakeholders to see what's going on, to have access to information that previously was was never available to the broader public, and I think that's driving a lot of these actions, and that's a good thing. I agree with Rob. It's a very, very good thing for the world, and and I think anybody who's um, uh, involved with any kind of... um, a uh, significant corporation now is is well aware that we need to get this right. The war for top talent, the war to retain talent, you know, the war the war to make sure we meet regulatory expectation, that we've got the widest pool of investor capital, uh, and that all our team go home feeling really great about what they do all day. Boy, it's all wrapped up in ESG. And, um, you know, it's here now. It's not theoretical. It's really here and the data is in. Um, and that's a very, very nice place for us to be sitting, I think, compared to where we were 30 years ago. Mm. So Odette, are we seeing this transition now from the social entrepreneur to the social intrapreneur, so driving positive change from within an existing business? 
I don't know about those labels. <laughs> I think we're seeing a transition to just positive social change everywhere. So you can change from within, you can change from without. You know, I, I'm a huge fan of the activist community. I'm a huge fan of the engagement community. Um, there's no question that generations that have come after me um, uh, are demanding a different standard. Um, and so there is change in the biggest, slowest, you know, dinosaur organizations and there's change in terms of entrepreneurship um, and the, the new starters. Um, and um, so I think that that's a pattern that, that um, we're seeing and it's expressing itself in many different formats. Um, and really the chance, you know, I'm a huge fan of SDG 17 is my favorite SDG, you know, partnership for the goals. Um, and, you know, as we see all our businesses pivot to understand, we have to point into the SDGs, doesn't matter what our business is. Um, you know, I think that one for me really catches it. Find ways to partner, find, think outside of our, our very narrow siloed thinking. So I think we're seeing that internally um, inside organisations. I think we're seeing it externally with the rise of social enterprise. In fact, I was reading a report yesterday that said that the social enterprise movement is the fastest growing movement in the world. Um, isn't that fascinating? And 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 we need to take that lesson both internally to our large corporations, our publicly traded businesses, and also in our education system with the youngsters that are coming out in terms of what they may choose to do. So whether we're entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs, the great news is uh, people are looking to make change and figure out what tools, what the tools of their trade are to be able to do that. Well, that's right. And, and, you know, when I think back to around 2007, can you remember Tom's Shoes out of the US became the fastest growing shoe company in the world? And that was one of the first organisations to develop that um, business for profit with a, a, a non-profit purpose behind it. There is the demand for that and there's demand for change and, and consumers are, are wanting to be able to tell that story as well or be part of that bigger picture. Uh, so what does the future look like? Are corporations the new change makers? Not yet. I think some corporations have leaders like Audette who are showing the way and let's hope that continues and there are a lot more Audettes uh, going forward. And, and these are to companies who, I must say, are often very willing to hear the message um, that they want to be or become good corporate citizens. But I think they are, um, they are reacting to the pressure of change. I don't think they're, they're leading the way to answer your question. Activist shareholders, as Audet mentioned, activist shareholders, I think, are playing a large part um, in the recent battle, the AGL battle, for example. There was an interesting investor called Snowcap Research out of the UK, which entered the fray. Uh, and called for improved performance by AGL on uh, ESG matters. Uh, Snowcap sort of describes itself as an atypical ESG investor. It, it, it looks for companies that are underperforming, takes a stake and looks to turn those companies around. And that, that to me is, is the ideal type of activist investor and a very positive uh, change. So I think these invention, interventions, I should say, and a growing awareness by companies is changing the way they operate. But I think, as I said, the companies are reacting to the change rather than being the change makers themselves. Interesting, isn't it? That's very interesting, Rob. I have to say, I think you're probably right. But it is, I wonder if that's that that's just um, typical of society. Not everybody leads, a lot of people follow. And so giving permission to step into a new space, you know, that's really what I feel is happening, that, that society is giving permission, in fact, encouraging and businesses responding other than business. You know, if I look at Unilever and the work that Paul Polman did, I mean, there's some really great leaders out there um, in this space. But, you know, one, one thing I'd, I'd just to contextualize the whole discussion, you know, we, we, we're sitting in the middle, we're living in this fascinating decade, 
you know, we've got three existential crises basically facing us, you know, the, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic, no, no matter how much we want to believe it to be, it is not, it's a long way from over. Um, you know, we've got climate change, which is not only real in the data, but it's real in our lived experience now in a way that I don't think Australians could even begin to comprehend even 15 or 20 years ago. Um, and now we've got this massive economic crisis um, that's coming at us from, from, you know, a whole series of factors, including, you know, the latest being the a war in Europe um, and an energy crisis um, uh, on the back of that. So, you know, we're living at a moment, you know, I was looking at the data the other day, 200 million more pe people are going to, it's estimated, will go into extreme poverty in the next six months. 200 million. And, and, and one thing that COVID has shown us is we were all connected. So, you know, as we think about our companies, and I, I agree, Rob, that, you know, there's a sort of a reactive rather than proactive a lot of the time. But as we think about how we manage our companies, you know, we're suddenly thinking about burden of disease, you know, how many of our staff are, are sick, you know, how many of our, our suppliers are sick, you know, where's this coming from? The globe. So that sort of understanding now of, oh, we're all connected, these issues, actually, these existential crises for the world matter to me, my business, even if what I have as a business that's entirely local um, uh, and, and not global, it's all impacting us. So, um, uh, you know, contextually, I think, you know, it could be a more important time um, for this work to be happening, for advice to be given um, and for um, companies to be able to uh, change the way that they operate in a way that meets all stakeholder needs um, and, and um, meets the SDGs, factors in with, with what's happening with the SDGs and where we need to go as a planet. Because boy, if we don't get it right in the next eight years, you know, we're, we're not gonna get it right. And um, you know, the, the, the ramp is very short, if you like, the off ramp is very short. But um, I, I personally feel enormously hopeful about what's happening, um, but the context is, is urgent. Uh, well, Dad, sure. I'd just like to echo that because what I was thinking throughout this conversation is I think it's immensely like positive that we're even having this conversation, that it's open, that it's been spoken about in board levels um, and boardrooms around the world. So for me, I feel like the future is pretty optimistic and maybe it's in five years time, we're not having this conversation about can you marry profit and purpose together? It's just the reality that that's, that's the way that businesses operate, which I think would be ideal. I, I would agree with that Elena and to pick up on a, an issue or a point you made earlier an important aspect of all of this is the regulators and the regulators are now coming on board and they are demanding activity and not only action plans to address these uh, risks of all kinds ESG in particular climate related risks for example they're, they're, they're asking for risk frameworks they're asking for actions and importantly uh, and increasingly and we've seen it out of the US with the SEC releasing climate reporting criteria. I think this is the beginning of the regulators are going to be more active and, and drag even the unwilling companies with them. So I, I, I agree. I'm positive, not necessarily because everyone's going to want and volunteer to do it, but I, I think we're all heading in the right direction. Mm, absolutely. And, and that relates not just to the environmental um, components as well, but I think the, the soft laws will turn into hard laws in, in, in the social context as well, for sure. We know more about the world's problems than we do about the world's problem solvers. And Audette, it has been an absolute privilege shining a light on your work today. I'd like to thank you, Audette, Rob and Elena, for joining us. It's been terrific. 
Thanks very much, Tamara. I agree. Great to talk to you, Odette, as well. Thanks. Pleasure to be here and to have a chat to you about such important issues. Thank you for listening to this special edition of ESG Matters. To hear more ESG Matters episodes, please visit ashurst.com forward slash podcasts. To ensure you don't miss future episodes, subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast platform. And while you're there, please feel free to leave us a rating or a review. Thanks again for listening and goodbye for now. If you enjoy ESG Matters at Ashurst, why not check out our other two podcast series as well? Ashurst Business Agenda tackles the big strategic issues that business leaders face. And Ashurst Legal Outlook explains the emerging legal trends and requirements of our fast-changing world. You can listen and subscribe to Business Agenda and Legal Outlook wherever you get your podcasts.